Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to remind everyone that our CMBH 12-week immersion program is open for fall application to anyone in Ontario. This is our popular medically integrated diet, exercise, and lifestyle program for people who struggle with their weight and metabolic health. Over the 12 weeks, you will get a physician's consultation and follow-up with a cardiometabolic health specialist. You'll get Dr. Appleton's empowered health report. You'll get a full review of your medical history, family history, and any medications you are currently taking, a system-by-system health assessment, including cardiovascular panel, lipids, kidneys, glucose metabolism, immune function, blood counts, and more. You'll get comprehensive lab tests, advanced diagnostics, and interpretation, prescriptions, if required, chronic disease risk assessment and management plan and medical management of any diagnosed conditions. Then you will also receive your very own health coach who will carry out Dr. Appleton's recommended plan. You will get diet, exercise and lifestyle coaching that can be done anywhere. You'll get support and accountability to keep you on track it is the full comprehensive package for people who want to take control of their health and change their lives the best part almost 70 percent of this program is covered by ohip for ontario residents and you do not need a physician's referral we will do the referral for you and it is all included if you're serious about taking care of your health please fill out the application form in the episode notes to see if you qualify or go to andrewappletonmd.ca that's all together one word andrewappletonmd.ca slash cmbh we hope to see you there Welcome to the Cardio Metabolic Health Podcast, where we teach you how to navigate the complex world of diet and exercise with medical and pragmatic views of the human body. Join Dr. Andrew Appleton and me as we give you the tools and resources to prevent and reverse lifestyle-driven diseases while optimizing fitness and getting the body you want. Enjoy today's episode. Well, then have at it. Because oh, uh, you want me to introduce it, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what uh, what we're talking about. Okay, yeah. Well, we're going to talk about lifestyle medicine. Ah. So, I mean, obviously, we we talk a lot about lifestyle and behavior change on the podcast, but uh, lifestyle medicine as its own entity. So, we uh, interviewed the guys from Aroga, which is a lifestyle medicine clinic in Victoria, BC, with satellite clinics across the country Um, but that was a while back Um, so it's just I thought it'd be interesting to sort of revisit that and think about it as an approach that people can use or physicians ultimately should be using in their practices so So what is your uh, basic definition of, of lifestyle medicine so well, I mean, there there is a definition from the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, so that would be the the gold standard. But it's it's basically a you know lifestyle behavior change management first approach to prevention or chronic disease management or even chronic disease reversal for patients, um, and it focuses on six different pillars. So we've talked a lot about you know, nutrition 
exercise, sleep, and stress. So those are four of the six pillars. And then they add in substances or toxins. So obviously reducing the use or uh, addiction to substances. And then connection, which is the social component or the spirituality uh, or having purpose and meaning in your life. So when they talk about toxins, they're not referring at all to environmental toxins, just it could like be. drugs and alcohol? It could be, but I mean, typically at the individual level, so we're, we're not necessarily talking about population health here, even though a lot of this would definitely benefit from good public health policy. Um, but at the individual level, you're screening people for smoking, alcohol use, um, marijuana, other illicit drug use and uh, and but that could also extend to other addictive behaviors in life whether it's you know food addiction uh, or other things that are detrimental to your health so what's interesting to you about lifestyle medicine <laughs> what's, what's interesting is how poorly it's done <laughs> well that's not interesting <laughs> nor surprising it's not surprising. I think it is interesting because in every single clinical practice guideline that physicians read and update and are based on evidence-based science, then the first-line treatment for basically every chronic disease management is lifestyle. But clinically and in the real world, that just gets completely glossed over and we jump to medications or surgical management of whatever the diagnosis may be. So it's it's sort of, we, we pay lip surface to it, right? So every time, okay, diet and lifestyle, diet and lifestyle. So yeah, you've got heart failure, or you're, you've got diabetes, obesity. So, I mean, you need to eat a healthier diet. And so the patient goes, well, what do I do? And you're like, well, I mean, you could follow like a Mediterranean diet or something like that. And that's basically as far as it goes in the, in the typical clinical encounter. So, you know, when medical students and residents going through training, that's essentially the exposure that you get to that sort of counseling. Uh, and then they'll say, okay, well, and you also need to be more physically active and exercise and somebody, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, I mean, sit less, um, get up and walk every hour or, uh, or the best one is you should do a cumulative 150 minutes per week of moderate intensity exercise. Okay, so that, that's like essentially meaningless to the person sitting in the chair across from you. Sure, but do you think being prescriptive or not being prescriptive is the actual issue that the person sitting in the chair across from you is facing? Like, oh, I'm 150 pounds overweight because someone hasn't properly prescribed me or directed me towards the exercise that's going to, to change this for me. Because when you talk about the medical system or governmental systems or even at the individual clinic level paying lip service to lifestyle medicine, well, the patients pay lip service to diet and exercise. So I, I have, you know, I have a certain amount of sympathy for doctors and just the medical establishment as a whole because if it was, if it was reasonably productive uh, to give lifestyle medicine, meaning you give it to 10 people, let's say 30% of them follow it in a way where it gives them some sort of meaningful change, then I can understand being heavy on the lifestyle medicine approach. But you and I both know those are not the statistics. Like if you get, if you get one in 20 people taking 
diet and exercise advice, and let's assume it is the best advice, the most instructive and specific and helpful advice you could give that person, if one in 20 people take that, like that's that's probably an ambitious stat. So yep. when you know that the person on the other end has a zero to five percent chance of taking lifestyle advice, a 90 to 100 percent chance of taking a medication, it makes the it makes where you put that limited time very it makes that decision very easy for the physician. I'm not saying it's right or how well, it should be. So first of all, the medication adherence is probably 70% or less. Even still. <laughs> even still. That's but, probably over time, but right? The, like I, this, I assume that is, wanes off. The thing is there is actually really good evidence for the power of lifestyle interventions if done properly and adhered to. And that that's the most important thing. The secret sauce is just adhering to a plan and committing to it. And so it becomes about how do you get there? Because when people do it, and you look at randomized controlled trials or you know big observational studies that look at association with physical activity and long-term health and mortality, like the evidence for lifestyle interventions, so people who move, don't smoke, don't drink, have a healthy BMI, you're talking they're living 14 or 15 plus years longer than people who have one or more of those unhealthy behaviors. So the power of it is huge. So it's really more a matter of on both sides of the table, how do you get people to actually come to that realization and then stick to it as a part of their daily routine? Because like hands down, a good, healthy lifestyle is a way more potent health-promoting strategy than any medication I could possibly prescribe anybody. Sure. I mean, if you look at the statistics in the U.S., prescription medication is the third leading cause of death. <laughs> uh, you know, some, some of the time taken improperly, but an equal amount of time taken properly. So right. medication is not, uh, is not this universal good. The, we, we talk about <laughs> substances, right? Medications are substances, things that physicians prescribe that I have prescribed opioid medications are not doing people any favors. They are, in fact, actively harming more people than they're benefiting. Yeah. So this is it, it's a major issue. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting having this conversation on the heels of the last episode that we just put out, which is all about motivation and the myth of motivation. So how so I go to this conference uh, in Albuquerque with all the American family physicians who want to learn about lifestyle medicine. And day one is all about motivational interviewing and how to take a health coach approach to lifestyle medicine. And so it's all about figuring out who is the person in front of you, what motivates them, what are their values, and how do you harness that as productive energy to get them to see the value of healthy lifestyle stuff. So you're not gonna change something for somebody all at once. Somebody comes to you, they're 50 years old, they've been living a certain way for five decades. You're not gonna change all of that overnight. But what does a coach do? A coach gets the best out of you. They find, you know, what is your potential? What is your ability? Where are your barriers? We help you fee find those things and coach you towards a healthier direction. 
So I think some of it is expectation management on the physician side. Some of it is how do you take that approach with somebody, which obviously takes time. And every doctor is looking at the clock during their clinic encounters because most of us are fee for service. And guess what? You got to get people through this through the clinic in order to actually make income. So there's there's a lot of competing priorities involved, but it's you know it, it really is that sort of approach that is probably what it's going to take to push people in that right behavioral direction at the individual level. But then on the other side of it, and this is sort of my where the practical mind comes in on the physician side is, is this the highest and best use of a physician's time? So I have more than enough patients who are so sick that all we can do is honestly keep them going with intense medical management. Now it's medications and rehab and all sorts of stuff or inpatient hospitalization or maybe they need surgeries or they need a lot of really complex investigations. We have more than enough of those patients to keep us busy for our entire careers. So where is the best place to insert this approach? And I think that's kind of what I'm struggling with. You know, this conference that I was at is for family doctors. It makes probably the most sense in a primary care setting. As long as you have the time to do it properly and you have the interdisciplinary team to help you out with it and you have mechanisms in place to coach that patient along the journey because there's going to be setbacks along the way. Yeah, I don't think this can be a physician's role ever uh, with the way things are set up right now. And I think it can only happen with a coach or assistant of some sort where it is the entirety of their job. I think the only way something like this works uh, in the most meaningful sense is if there are two arms of healthcare in a place like Canada where you have the medical arm and then you have the preventative arm where the preventative arm is essentially the lifestyle medicine but they have to be separate with separate goals and separate people who work within those different sorts of institutions but then they work collectively to move patients toward the same goal but at this point it's going to be hard to turn the wheel the other way of the physician being the prescriber because most people that you spend most of your time with, and not just you as a specialist, but a family physician, are the sickest people. People who have metabolic disorders, people who are already going through and suffering from some sort of disease process where you're managing their prescriptions in order to keep them alive and comfortable as long as possible under the current circumstances, right. which they are unlikely to change very quickly with you know, just lifestyle changes. My apologies, my, I forgot to turn my ringer off on my phone. But you could also have a preventative arm of healthcare that is people who, uh, it, it's hard to figure out how you structure the service, but whether it's nutritional guidance or uh, other basics of lifestyle, like teaching someone uh, sleep coaching or stress management, or even, exercise, either access to instructive exercise or access to some sort of, you know, online support where you could even do something in your basement if you have some some guidance. That has to be 
a government-funded project as well. And I'm hesitant to say government-funded because <laughs> as soon as that happens, it becomes incredibly inefficient, way more expensive than it needs to be, and a low-quality product. Well, if they're paying for it, they want to control it. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, like anybody paying for anything, you want to know that you're getting value for your money, and they can't help but get their fingers in there, and then you know they set their arbitrary performance metrics and – there you go. And then whichever government of the day, you're always at risk for this changes, this changes, you know, the funding pot goes away or more is added in some areas. And it just, yeah, it gets overly complicated. But I agree with you. It would be great to just be given a, an envelope of funding for preventative health integrated services that are multidisciplinary, because that's ultimately what it's it's going to take. I mean, the problem with prevention is you take people who seemingly should be healthy and free of disease, and now you're giving them funding to keep them free of disease. I mean, that's logically, that's actually the best thing we can possibly do as a society en masse, but nobody wants to spend money for a place where there doesn't seem to be a problem already. Well, I don't know that you can say that considering most, the majority of the adult population is on the brink Yes. Of becoming diseased. So it's not there. Very few people are healthy. That's why I said seeming. Very, very few people are healthy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and just to go back on, on my last point there, like f- for me in, in the ideal world, and this would be the same for medicine, for education, for everything. Everything is private, but publicly funded. Schools are privatized. Medicine is privatized. Lifestyle is privatized. As many people who want to go into that space, create a business, operate it, and do their best to convince people that they're the person that they should go to to spend their money, make that an open market. But then every taxpayer gets, or you know, and non-taxpaying citizens as well, get a certain amount of money from the government that can be allotted to those services. And you get to choose who your physician is, where you go to school, what gym you go to, where you buy your food, all of these different things that we know are critical for someone's long-term health. But instead of saying, oh, the government is going to run this and create the infrastructure and employ and do, no, let the private industry take care of that. And the best doctors will get the most amount of money. The best schools will get the most amount of students and funding. The best healthcare systems will get the most amount of everything. The best people will go to the best places and the best run institutions. And there ha- I think there has to be some move towards, because when people think about privatization, the first thing they think of is, oh, I now don't have universal health care and people are just going to be lying dead in the streets. I'm going to get hit by a car and I can't go to the hospital because I can't afford the bill. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you don't pay for any of this stuff. But there Directly. is private, but there is private industry competition where naturally people who provide the best services in those different areas and institutions will lead the way rather than what we have now. And don't get me wrong, there's great physicians, there's great teachers. But we are more likely to get poor ones and more poor ones when there is no consequence for bad performance. When you are just constantly funded under all circumstances, and unless you have some sort of severe ethical breach, you will continue to get paid in that position. Even if you're the worst teacher or worst physician, you have a 0% success rate, you're not even interested in serving the population, it's just a job to you and, and a paycheck to collect. I think there's more of that than the other. Well, so in, interesting that you mentioned that. So I, I 
when in speaking with a lot of the these physicians, so they're family doctors in the United States, and they've got various different payment models, and most of them are are salaried employees of health organizations or hospitals. So many of them are there at a lifestyle medicine conference because they're totally burned out, and they're looking for a different way of practicing medicine. Uh, one woman told me when I asked what she did, she said, "I'm a I'm a recovering eMERGE doc, right? So she, she's actually quit emergency medicine and she's opening up a private lifestyle medicine clinic. And a lot of people will do basically like a subscription model, like concierge type medicine where uh, somebody can pay an annual price to get access to primary care. Uh, and if they know that that physician takes a lifestyle medicine first approach, then even better, they'll pay a little bit more of a premium for that. So cool, like that's that's the sort of thing that's that's happening in the U.S. Our system is totally different in Canada, and there's a complete disincentive to do anything uh, that might seem proactive like that, unless you're just going after a market of people who are willing to pay out of pocket for additional services. Uh, and that market exists absolutely, but that's more of the private direct payment private model that you're talking about not talking about yeah <laughs> right so it, it, yeah it's it's just it's interesting and i think at the physician level they're definitely they it, it's definitely part of the responsibility of physicians to to take this sort of approach i i spend a lot of time in clinic talking to patients about sleep and exercise and nutrition and and stress and and all the rest of it uh, and i integrate that with my medical treatment and looking at all of their data and everything else. So I see it in parallel and yeah, it probably takes a little bit more time for me to do that, but you can do it relatively quickly and at least it creates an awareness for that person. And I've had lots of people who just sort of, that's enough of a, a, a seed planted that they go out and they start to look at things and, and they do stuff themselves and they come back to clinic and they go, by the way, I, you know, I've been doing this program that I found on YouTube every day and, and, and it's great. I feel great. Perfect. You're, you're doing something more physically active than you were before. That's amazing. That, that's a win, something that we can, we can celebrate. So there is space for it in, in the physician's clinic for sure, but it's definitely going to take a lot more people and thinking about a different model of delivery in order to take this to the masses because what do people do right now so if if you're interested in being healthy you have to seek out health promoting things or activities on your own a la carte so i have a gym i have a particular way i like to eat and i source that food at a you know different location at a grocery store uh, I have a community that I like to be a part of socially. I go there on Thursday nights. Uh, I've you know, come up with a, a setup and in, in routine for sleeping well at night. So you're sort of doing all of these things piecemeal. Whereas if you can go somewhere and get that sort of guidance all inside of four walls, I think that would be hugely beneficial. Yeah, I, I know this is a, a biased point of view because I own a gym but to me that's core like that's central to the value of a gym to most people because you don't need a gym to get into shape you don't need a gym to lose weight you don't need that's a gym right. to be strong to be healthy the community but number one it's it's an appointment right mm. you, it's a commitment it's a place where you have to go uh for many people at a certain time to do the thing that you're setting out to do 
because you and I both know that if someone's just left to their own devices and, oh, I can get around to it anytime. Well, then it's it's never the time, right? right? Whereas if you go to a place where there's classes at specific times and you, you know, you book your classes ahead of time and you've set this, you've set this solidified expectation to show up, number one, it gets people there. And then number two, it is a community atmosphere of like-minded people. So it's not just that you go and for people it's social and there's connection and you have friends at the gym and, and not only does that that keep you coming back, but it gives you all of these less tangible benefits of, of social connectivity. Uh, but also uh, people who are in that gym are trying to do the same thing as you. They're trying to eat better. They're trying to exercise more. They're trying to rid their lives of, of some of these uh, problem problematic uh, lifestyle activities, like everything that is ever social has to involve like alcohol and f- restaurant food and these sorts of things. Like I'm going on a bit of a tangent here, but I'm getting really frustrated with my kids at school where every occasion, every reward, everything centralizes around junk food. Like every, every special day is like, it's, hot dog day or pizza day or freezy day or cake day. Did anybody bring in smile cookies <laughs> to your kids' of class? Of course. And then they reward my – and I've spoken about, about this in the past. that I find this completely offensive and wrong. But if my child does something good and goes above and beyond, they get candy at school. Like teachers will physically give them candy. Like gave my kid a pack of rockets – which is just like little sugar cubes in a package. It's cocaine for kids, yeah. And it's like we have we've we've created we've created this idea in society that, you know, adults when we're socializing as adults, it's alcohol and food. Uh, when we're rewarding kids, it's sugar, snacks. Like we need to get away from that stuff. And I'm circling back to say like the gym is a place where you can go do something good for yourself, see people, talk to people, socialize, do all these things and not have it attached to the sorts of habits and behaviors that that make it difficult to make the changes people are trying to make outside of the gym. So like that community as like you need something you need something that anchors you to the difficult changes you're trying to make because if you're just left to your own devices and willpower is the thing that's going to reinforce your lifestyle changes, that's never going to last. There's got to be something almost like a central value system. In a lot of circles, what church used to be or to some people still is, is less about God and less about whatever, you know, the religious preachings are of that place. It's about, I want to go to a place with my family where we get together with other families that I feel like have somewhat similar value system to us and integrate ourselves into that community and go back there every single week and see the same group of people who have the same sort of, you know, that might be an idealistic uh, view of religion. But for a lot of people, that's what it is. It's not about the Bible. It's about the community and a lot of like there used to be a lot of those different spaces that are now that are now eroding and disappearing. And a lot of people are floundering because that is a credit like I'm not a religious person, but I understand the value of those religious spaces for human beings. There's a reason why everywhere in the world those places exist. 
in many different ways with many different points of view, but they're everywhere. It's because it's central to human well-being. And now we there's so few of those places. To me, the gym is becoming church to a lot of people. It's like yeah. the, place Amen. You, the place you go on a regular <laughs> basis where people that you have similar goals and values are getting together and, you know, spending time together. Uh, and the, you have to have that, if, especially if it's something that you don't come by naturally, like activity and healthy eating. Like you got to get yourself around people on a routine basis who are struggling in the same ways you are and trying to accomplish the same thing mixed in with people who have already done it before who can essentially yeah. loosely mentor you, like mentor you in, in, in an indirect way, in an unintentioned way. But just being around people who have who have gone through what you've gone through and have succeeded, and it, now it's natural to them. Like you got to have some of those people so, there so too. You're, yeah, you're talking about the pillar of of social connection, which is super crucial to human well being. And if you can pair that up with one of the other pillars of of healthy living, like exercise or like getting together for a healthy cooking club, then you know that's something that could be really beneficial. Because one of the things that really holds people back is if you you live in a family, you've sort of seen the light, so to speak, you're starting to do some healthier stuff, but you have a partner or family members at home who are like, what are you doing? Like, what are you eating? That looks gross. Like, I don't, I don't know why you're doing that. Like, that is, you're going to fail because you're, you're going to, you know, bow to the peer pressure and that's just the way it is. So you have to find that group and some, in some cases, that means finding a new group of people who are actually focused on doing the same healthy things that you would like to do. So what's the sort of person you want to be? Surround yourself with people who are already on that same journey, and you're probably going to be a lot more successful. Um, one of the other things that came up at this meeting by a guy who was doing the health coaching part was uh, the notion of threatened autonomy. And saying the autonomy is obviously one of the most importantly held values that any human being has. Like we want to make autonomous decisions. We want to be in control of ourselves. As soon as you prescribe something for somebody, say, or you tell them unsolicited what their problem is, they're going to turn the other way and go, no, thanks. I don't I don't need to be fixed. Like, what's what's your problem? So you need to really, somebody has to sort of invite you in and that's how you have that conversation with somebody can, can be interesting. But if you just tell someone what to do, like we all know this with our kids, you tell your kid what to do, what do they want to do? The exact opposite thing. Whereas if you, you know, that's why reverse psychology works so well with children. So we have to be cognizant of that because as adults, we're the same child just in a larger body and we're you know prone to the same psychological stuff so um, people need to choose for themselves so it's more getting to that root value and say okay well what can what can you do what do you think you can do to actually move towards that healthy goal that you tell me that you have and, and do you think you can do it yeah I think it's important to distinguish <clears throat> between the two types of people because someone who who is motivated, has tools in the toolkit, and is, you know, already on the path to success. 
you can tell that person to do like they just want information and they're already in a position right. to apply it and if they're coming to you they're coming to you because they think you're the person to give them the better information that they're just going to follow yeah. so they're looking for an expert opinion they're not looking for a coach right the person who you're referring to is someone who has limited to no tools in the toolbox is very insecure about their current state is very insecure about the idea of taking on different sorts of habits and behaviors in something like cooking and even just food selection, let alone exercise or going to a gym. That's the person where you have to have a kid glove mentality of handling them right. because they're in such a sensitive place. And the idea of the idea of change, as well as the spaces and places they may, may need to go to in order to foster change is so frightening to them whether it's implicit or explicit, they're they're looking for a reason not to do any of this. Like they're waiting anything. Or they're waiting for the moment to to be turned off of the instructions that you're going to give them because it, if you know yourself, you know that you love excuses. And there's there is an overwhelming amount of good excuses, true excuses, valid excuses. The problem is it doesn't matter how how true or valid an excuse is, it is unhelpful for getting you where you need to go. But someone's already there with their own bag of excuses. They're just waiting for you to give them the one for, for you where they say, oh, here's the perfect excuse now for me to no longer listen to you because yeah. I don't believe in myself. I'm not even interested in going down this road. I'm so afraid to even think about the possibility of doing the things that I know you're going to tell me to do. Just give me one reason to say this guy doesn't know what he's talking about or this person offended me or this person has no idea what I'm going through. So they're not someone that I should listen to about this. It's very uh, it's very tricky nav navigating those waters with people. For sure. And you've, you've got to elicit in pretty quick fashion who the person is who's sitting across from you and whether or not they're actually going to be receptive to, to anything. But, I mean, I find if you, if you just ask – you know, like, are, like, do you want, do you want to talk about any of this? Or like, do you like, is this important to you or not? And some people will say, you know what? No, I, I honestly, I just, I'd rather just take a medication. Okay, fine. Whatever. That's, that's great. I'll ask again next time, but it is what it is. So yeah, you're not, you're not going to ultimately fix anybody. And that's, I don't think that's a nihilistic perspective. I think it's more of a realistic perspective. Um, but that doesn't mean that it won't change in the future because, you know, there's the whole stages of change model, the pre-contemplation, contemplation, planning, et cetera, you know, initially applied to smoking cessation, but basically now applied to any behavior change management. So if somebody's in the pre-contemplation phase, you're not going to make any headway with that person. All you can do is create awareness because people, you can't change and, you, and you, you won't think about something you're not aware of. You go, well, by the way, like, did you know that, you know, this you know, physical activity, even going from zero to two hours a week is associated with like a 20% reduction in, in mortality, like all cause mortality. Oh, okay. No, I didn't know that. Well, I mean, there you go. So think about that. They say, who cares? Nerd, yeah. give right. me my pills. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you're serious about helping somebody, all you can do is make it clear that you're a person who can give some direction and that you're always open to give that direction. Right. And then have have communication and a relationship where that door is always open. Because you 
as much as you'd like to help people change, the individual has to decide when change happens. And is really, people always attribute to change to like a book that they read or a person that they followed or this thing that they did, when realistically that's just the person or thing that was around in the moment that you decided for whatever reason that you were going to change, Timing. which can happen for a million different reasons. Uh, the other day I was listening to this, uh, not really a debate, but a conversation about the brain versus spirituality and the, the, how, the, how the brain operates and how a lot of times people, um, people attribute just basic brain operation to, to something like, like God. Uh, I don't know why I'm, I'm talking about God so much today. But for instance, like someone just has this internal epiphany that is unexplained and they just decide one day that they stopped smoking, right? And someone will say like, oh, well, that was God talking to me. God told me that smoking's bad. And from that moment again, I never, I never had another cigarette. And then, you know, a neuroscientist would say, no, this is just what happened in your brain at this time. I don't know. I can't explain what it is in that exact moment and no one else can, which is why there's this debate of like neuroscience versus versus God. But there is this moment that is unexplainable where there's a crossroads in a person's life. It, no matter what what they're facing, where they change who they are and they change directions and it's like a complete 180 and it is unexplainable, that has to be there. And I don't know, this is what's so difficult about directing people is I don't know how to get a person there. And there's no, there's no evidence. There's no reasonable explanation. There's just this X factor in human beings where it's probably a combination of countless things that all converge at once where a person says, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not eating like that anymore. I'm not drinking alcohol anymore. I'm not talking to my wife like that anymore. I'm not treating my kids like this anymore. I'm not being like, I'm, I'm going to start being ambitious. I've been, people make that decision and stick with it for the rest of their lives. And I don't know what that switch is, but to me, it seems like it is a necessary thing for any sort of permanent change. Anyone can have this, you know, fleeting inspiration where like for two weeks or four weeks or even a couple months, they're like foot on the gas pedal towards the goal and then it all falls apart. But when people fundamentally change who they are in the most central way, where they just completely change their value system, where I'm just like, that's old me. They completely burn the old version of themselves. This is who I am now. And this version of me does not do those things. Does not think those things, does not act in this way, does not say those things. And this is me now. I mean, if you could figure out what that is and deliver it to people, like that's really the life-changing thing. And I think this is also what's very frustrating for a lot of people is it doesn't matter how good the advice is or who it comes from it, or how much science is behind it. It's like if you don't have that moment where you decide you're going to be a different, a completely different person, None of it's gonna yeah. last. It's like it's it's gonna hit you the right way on on the right day when the sun is at a certain position in the sky and just you know crack. There's a huge a huge shift all of a sudden. I mean, off, often I think that's associated with a fairly extreme life event or it health be, or certainly. health crisis, but not always. I think that's like an ex I think that's the 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 way that you accelerate yourself to that yeah. moment in those cases. It's a, uh, it's a catalyst, right? So if like if you know if somebody somebody close to you 
has you know a cancer diagnosis and you're like oh shit like we're the same age and we kind of have the same lifestyle like that's terrifying i'm going to start to look after myself now so i think that's that's understandable to have that shift but i mean certain what you're describing just happens to people it's just like just one day you know i all of a sudden decided that's it i'm i'm walking in a new direction yeah and i know i'm talking about this a lot but what I was bringing it back to is I think the more the more people you have in your life that can be positive influences and positive resources, yeah. the more tools you've set yourself self up with, the more attempts you've made, even if they end up in failure, every attempt that ends in failure, you're going to pick something up. You know, you're going to expose yourself to, to someone or some like some model, some structure, some framework. The more of those things that are around, I think the broader uh, the broader your receptivity to those moments is. And if you find yourself in a place where it's, you know, midnight, you've eaten yourself sick to your stomach, you're on your sixth or seventh drink, and this is your life, and you just sit there and think like, I don't want this for myself anymore. You can have that thought with no path to success and no idea of where to start or how to get there. You probably wake up the next day and just end up repeating the same thing. But if you find yourself in that moment and you know, I can talk to this person, I know exactly where to go right now or where I'm going to start. I know what I'm going to sign up for. I know who I'm going to reach out to. Then that moment can turn into something more permanent. So as the coach, I think it's important that you're always trying to be that person to everybody. Like no, I, no matter where this person is or how many times we've gone through this, yeah, yeah, this is the sixth time you're back now. I'm sure this is going to be the real difference maker. Instead of being that person, just always be always be the individual that people know they can go to and not feel ashamed to come to you and ask for help or ask for advice or want to come back and sign up for something. Like if someone, for instance, if someone like drops a gym membership and leaves the gym and they're gone for, your, for a year and a half, it's not like I hold anything against people or make it difficult for them to come back. You don't go to their house and slash yeah. their tires. And, and I don't mean that from like a business perspective. I just mean on a personal level, like come back anytime. Right. And I'll, I'll always doors, pretend. Doors open. Yeah. I'll always pretend that you never left. You're not going to walk in the door. I'm going to go, hey, everybody, look who it is. Where you been for the yeah. last year and a half? Like, hey, how's but it going? People are people are like that. Right. And if someone knows, oh, this something like this might happen, they're not they're not coming back to you. And so, like, the best coaches are just the best people. The best coaches are are the most personable, understanding, empathetic individuals to be around because the advice doesn't matter that much. The ability to get people to want you to be the one they take advice from is is where most of the magic is there, I'd say. Yeah. So to bring this full circle, <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say it's it's still largely on the individual's plate to take control of their For lifestyle sure. medicine pillars that, that we discussed. Uh, especially in Canada, I, I probably wouldn't really recommend that anybody – go first to their physician as as the best source of how can you optimize your lifestyle. I think most physicians could give you sort of just rough guidelines, like I mentioned off the top, but it's not going to get a lot more in depth than that. As we go forward, I mean, there this is a it's a growing field. Um, I think I'll 
probably be the second faculty member in London to uh, to have the lifestyle medicine designation once I get through the process. Um, but hopefully we can spread that and it will become more common just to be able to talk about, not, you know, not even necessarily to the level of, of specializing in it or, or prescribing specific interventions, but just to have more of an awareness and, and talk about. I'm hoping that that's not too far on the horizon. But yeah, like as we said, people, you need to surround yourself with, with the right people. You need to kind of work through those those different pillars and go, how can I optimize each of those things? And it's multiple small changes lead to big changes down the road. So I think that's if you have that perspective, it's not it's not doing the new year's resolution. I'm going to go in and whole hog and do this. And then uh, knowing that it's not going to be sustainable or work out. Uh, it's just, what can I do to optimize my life every day in terms of the behaviors that I do to bring me meaning and purpose and the healthiest, best, longest life that I can. Yeah. And I think, I think in saying that in a lot of ways, goals are, are overrated. Like if someone's like, I just got this goal and I'll do everything I can to get there without really thinking about how how much value there is in the day-to-day process. So the, the success is the process. It's that For that's sure. the outcome, is the process. It's not the the time or the weight or the number of cigarettes. It's you know, it's that are you committing to the plan? and sticking with the plan every day, that is success. Anything else? That's it, man. The content provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the providing of medical advice and is not intended to be a substitute for independent professional medical judgment, advice, diagnosis, or treatment. I mean, clearly not when I'm speaking. I'm not a doctor, but that goes for the real doctor, Dr. Appleton as well. You should always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions or concerns you may have regarding your health. You should never disregard or delay seeking medical advice relating to treatment or standard of care because of information contained in or transmitted Huh? Transmitted? Yes, information contained in or transmitted in this podcast.